Well, good morning. My name's Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor here at City Reform. We have an uh, opportunity for our children to be dismissed for Children's Church. We are starting the, the school year with a, a short series of three sermons on three core values of our church. We've talked about these over the years in different ways and with slightly different language, but it's really an opportunity to, to remind those of us that have been here for a while of central commitments and also to explain ourselves and introduce ourselves to people that are new, that are visiting, that are uh, trying to understand things that are most important to us. Last week, we talked about this core value of being people who listen to God, receive his word of revelation in the scriptures and center our lives around him. As we would say as, as people were committed to a, a Godward focus of listening to his word and responding to the scriptures. But there is a, uh, uh, we might say, a horizontal aspect to our commitment. We are committed to each other. We are committed to be a congregation that, that values the relationships we have as a church. The, the Bible says that uh, as a church, we are the household of God. That is, we are God's family. And so we're committed to live together as best we can as brothers and sisters, uh, people who have real relationships. And we desire relationships that uh, help us to grow in our faith, to be more like Jesus. Today we're going to look about at this uh, calling, this commitment, um, and find it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, a place that paints for us a, a, a really vivid picture of, of living Christian community, but also that highlights the costliness of committing ourselves to one another and the power of Jesus that makes it possible. I'm going to read uh, the passage and then together we'll affirm this as God's word. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to turn your attention to verse 2. Um, Paul calls the Philippian church to a uh, a life of community that he describes as being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's a picture of people living together in harmony. And perhaps you've had points in time in your life where you've experienced particularly close friendships, uh, maybe in, in a family. Uh, perhaps uh, vividly apparent on a family vacation as you enjoy time together, or perhaps it's the experience of being on a team 
Some of us have had team experiences where uh, you feel the unity of competing together for a certain purpose. Everyone considering the goals of the team more important than your own recognition. Or perhaps it's a, a come in a different form, in a work environment, in a, in a study group. Uh, or perhaps your experience of the military has been one where you experience camaraderie. Um, it's often been said by soldiers who return from war that they have never found relationships as deep as the ones they found that were forged under the little, literal fires of combat. There is a part of us that longs for this true community. The Bible tells us that we were made for relationships. We were not made to be alone, but that we were forged to have meaningful relationships with other people. And yet we live at a, a time and a place in uh, our modern Western culture where true relationships are becoming fewer and farther in between. The sociologists tell us that modern people are more isolated than ever before where other generations were forced to live together, forced to share close uh, living arrangements or to work together just to accomplish the purposes of life, our modern Western world provides technology and uh, many of the comforts of life that make uh, community living not as necessary. We're not forced to be together. Uh, we find it easier to escape with the many technological devices we have. Maybe you've had the experience of going out to a restaurant to eat. You see a, a family of four sitting around the table, every person glued to their own technological device. Uh, they're keeping tabs on the 1,000 friends they have online, but they can't actually talk to the person across of them. And maybe that's your life. We recognize as we look at this passage that Community is something we deeply long for, but the Bible tells us something else. It tells us that true community is difficult. One of the reasons we retreat into the worlds of our, of our phones and our televisions and our computers is that they offer a, a false sense of intimacy without the real problems that come from actual people. The, the Bible presents us a very real picture of human relationships and community, it tells us that relationships are important, they're necessary, but they're also hard. The only relationships we get to have are with real, pe with real people are with sinners, people like you and me who are often selfish and disappointing. And so many times we find ourselves caught between the proverbial rock and the hard place. We long for relationships, but relationships disappoint. As we think about the core values of our church, we think about this calling to be intentional, to have life-giving relationships, but some of you are sitting there now thinking, you know what, I have tried that before, and it was hard. And maybe the reason you keep your distance at church isn't just selfishness, but it's reality. You've been hurt before. You've been hurt in a relationship. When we open ourselves up to really care, we open ourselves up to the opportunity of pain. We find this to be the case in church as well as any other setting. Humans are capable of hurting one another. Maintaining a real relationship is hard. Oftentimes we start with the initial flush of joy as we come together. Maybe in a church setting, in a small group or in a new congregation, everything seems good. And then it gets hard. 
then people find out what's really going on in our lives and we realize the people around us are not as nice and polished as we had first thought. The Bible tells us not only that relationship is necessary, but relationship is hard. In the passage we look at today, the Apostle Paul shows us the costliness that's required of true community. If in verse 2 we see a picture of uh, Paul's joy being complete as they gather together with the same love in full accord and one mind, we also see in verses 3 and 4 the costliness of making this happen. Uh, perhaps you've had the experience of enjoying a really good dinner somewhere. Maybe you, you go up to your, uh, your family or your in-laws for Thanksgiving dinner and you walk in and everything is prepared before you. If you've never cooked a meal before, you probably have no idea the costliness of that meal. The hours that were spent in the, over, you know, in the kitchen with the, the things in the oven and the microwave and the stove top. There's a costliness in what is prepared. That's real. And that's what, that's what the Apostle Paul is showing us here. The beauty of this feast of Christian community is a, a feast that is costly. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. We see the costliness of this feast of Christian community. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Now, that might sound good in theory, but when you actually do it, it's hard, isn't it? Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Now, Paul's realistic here. We do look to our own interests, but he's inviting us to look to the interests of others to carry more burdens. In his letter to the Galatians, he gives us a picture of a church where people bear one another's burdens. It sounds wonderful in theory, but the burden bearing is difficult in practice, isn't it? Finally, we see a picture here of a, a selfless, life-giving posture that is exemplified by Jesus on the cross. Again, Paul shows us a beautiful picture of Christian community. Then he shows us the costliness of that community. Verse 5, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What sort of mind did Jesus have? He humbled himself, he emptied himself, and he died. That's a, that's a, costly, that's a costly meal, isn't it? That's a costly investment that Paul is calling us to have. How are we going to do it? Well, I'd like to share three things in the passage. First of all, we, we want to see uh, the way in which the mind of Christ, this posture of self-giving love, actually brings freedom from, other, from the, the, the false attempts to please others. There's a freedom in the obedience Jesus gives us. Secondly, um, we see an accurate picture. We can, we can have a realistic view of Christian community as we see what Paul gives us, and sometimes that's half the battle. Third and finally, and most importantly, the mind that we have is in Christ Jesus. We give ourselves to others in community because Jesus has given himself for us and he has been raised from the dead. The power of the spirit is the power in which we live. So three things that we see here um, as we, we talk about how we're going to do it. Uh, since my time in college, it's been common for people to speak about their pursuit of community. 
uh, I remember as a college student, the buzzword community first started to develop and all of the, the sort of hipster college students around me talked about having true communities and maybe we can live in small towns and, and, and you know, really know our neighbors. It never quite rang true to me because I grew up in a small town. And if there's one thing a small town has, it is community. In all the senses of the word, it is dripping with community. So much community that everyone just wants to get out of there. Do you, do you know how people in a small town talk about community? This is how they talk about it. They say, man, everyone knows my business. Right? That's, that's what it means to be a community. People know about you. And in a small town, they're like, people are like, man, I can't go anywhere and not be known. I can never be anonymous. There is a burden that comes with community. And some of you know that burden quite well. And so all of this talk can sound a little bit unrealistic, pie in the sky. Or maybe when you hear about this call to Christian community, you find yourself thinking, doesn't that just make me a doormat? How, how do I live as Jesus lived and not let other people walk all over me? Maybe, maybe there's good reason you're thinking about it. Some of you uh, maybe grew up in a family system that was overly tight and close but unhealthy, and you found your role in the family system was to appease everyone by doing everything they wanted. Maybe your system shaped you to be a people pleaser. And so when you hear these words of uh, dying to self and of, of having the mind of Christ, you find yourself thinking, you know, I've tried that and it didn't work very well. I'm not, I'm not sure how to, how to do that without being a doormat. The first thing we want to look at here is to recognize that the type of self-giving service Jesus gives us is not the same as people-pleasing slavery. How do we know that? Well, we know that because the mind that is ours is in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is someone who gave himself fully but was ruled by no one. One of the features of Jesus we see here is that he humbled himself, gave himself for others, even to the point of death. But the other feature we see in this passage is very important to keep in mind if we're going to hold this together and have an accurate picture and that is, in verse 8, Paul tells us Jesus was obedient. Jesus was not only giving himself fully and freely to people, but Jesus was obedient. Now, you might be asking the question, who was Jesus obedient to? He was obedient to proper human authorities in their appropriate setting. That's true. But what Paul's thinking about here is that Jesus was obedient to his heavenly Father. As a, a real human, Jesus lived a real life around us, and he lived a life of perfect submission to his heavenly Father. As, as such, Jesus was obedient to God first and foremost and entirely, and he was not a slave of any person. It's this posture that helps us to understand the very unique aspects of the life of Jesus. On one hand, he was very other-centered. Jesus would give of his time freely. He would give sacrificially. For instance, in the, in the uh, Gospel of Mark chapter 2, we have a picture of the early years of Jesus in ministry. He is pouring himself out continually and, re and repeatedly. And out of his self-giving, everyone around, else around him has life. He teaches from dawn to dusk. He heals everyone that comes to him. He rebukes and battles the powers of spiritual darkness that show up on his doorstep. 
and everyone is excited about his ministry, Mark chapter 2. And then the next morning, everyone goes to find Jesus, and he's gone. They're really excited about his ministry, and they've decided they're going to set up a base of operations, but Jesus is not going along with their plans. He says, I've come to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's why I'm here. I'm going to go do it. He will pour himself out fully and freely, but he is a slave to no one. In a similar manner, at the peak of his ministry, Jesus has been followed by great crowds of folks, and they want to make him a king, a human king. But he says, I will not be the king in the sense that you want me to be king. I will not do it. In the words of one American general who who said something to the effect that if you nominate me for president, I won't run. If you elect me, I won't serve. Jesus wasn't going to have any of it. And so at the peak of his ministry, he announces that his intention is to go to Jerusalem where he will die and no one wants him to do it. His disciples try to dissuade him. It's not the plan that they have for Jesus, but he's determined. He goes to his death and he pours himself out fully and completely in service to others. And yet when he's confronted with the religious leaders of his time, he rebukes them to their face because they know not the plans of God. In his obedience, Jesus gives himself fully, but he is free from pleasing others. Let me just pause there for a second because it's so important that we get this. And and I'll pause especially because I find it hard for me to get this. Personally. The line between caring for others and pleasing them and being ruled by them is often gray and murky and it's hard. Obedience to God means we serve and give freely but we are not ruled by others. And the reason I think it's so important is that true love is not done to gain and grab the affection of others, but true love comes when we seek the good of someone else, not their approval. You know that? When you are seeking someone's approval, when you are ruled by your, the desire that they approve of you, you can't love them. You can only take what they have. I was watching a, a very old movie recently. Uh, it's called Citizen Kane. It's a, a great movie. It's taken me a long time to discover it's a great movie. It's black and white, and it's slow, and it's old. In a dramatic scene of the movie, though, uh, uh, Citizen Kane's second wife confronts him with his selfishness. He says to her, I've given you everything over these years. I've given you it all. Don't you know that I love you? And she said, You've never loved me. You've only been buying my affections. You've needed my approval. It's not real love. Powerful insight, isn't it? Jesus is free to love because he does not need the approval of others. The task he's called to is hard, though. Nonetheless, obedience to God means pouring ourselves out in service, serving others when it's difficult. He says, have this mind among yourself. Jesus poured himself out. He gave himself to the point of death. And look at the things that, the specific things that Paul says we're called to do. They're not easy. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, you probably don't label your own goals and motives selfish ambition. But if God gave you the insight to see your life, we're honest, wouldn't we say, you know, actually, do you have a number of, of ambitions and goals that I want? 
do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. A quick test, conversation. When you're in a conversation with someone and they are talking about their ideas and that thing wells up inside you that says, I'm going to share now because it's so important. It's a test, isn't it? Are the ideas of others more significant than yours? And yours may very well be right. We're not saying they're insignificant or there's never a place to share them, but that thing you're feeling when you say, I must be heard now, that's what Paul's talking about. Look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. It's hard. It's hard, isn't it? The reason we often don't have true community is it's hard. It requires dying to ourselves. There is no I in team. Teams are hard. But the passage gives us encouragement. The mind we have is the mind of Jesus. And what we learn as we look at the passage is that the calling of the Christian life is a calling to pick up a cross and follow Jesus. It's a move towards resurrection, but it's a move through the humiliation of cross-carrying. The second thing we see as we look at the passage is a realistic perspective on the Christian life. That's what Paul gives us. Some of us, perhaps have been deluded into thinking the Christian life will be nothing but an unending series of victories. There there are people that teach that. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the Bible. We would like to believe that, though. That because Jesus has been raised from the dead, all we can expect is one series of unending victories. If he's the king, if he's ruling over all, then shouldn't we expect to see unending victories in our life? Jesus didn't think so. When he began to reveal to his disciples his purpose, he says, I'm not going to be the king that you want, but I'm going to Jerusalem, and there I will die and be raised from the dead. Peter rebuked him. Jesus was determined, and then he turned around and said, if anyone wants to follow me, he'll pick up his cross too. You will have troubles in this world, Jesus said, but take heart, I've overcome the world. This picture of Jesus going down into death and up into resurrection becomes the picture and the form of the Christian life. Just this past week, a friend handed me a new new book called The The J-Curve by Paul Miller, one of my favorite authors. It's an entire book committed to thinking practically about how this model of dying and rising shapes all that we do. This is the biblical pattern. There is glory, there is exaltation, but the pathway is through the cross. We die to ourselves. We learn to say no. We learn to value others more. And it's through that that we see the glory and the life and the beauty and the blessing. In your dying, others have life. In your struggles, you learn to be more like Jesus. This is the way of the cross. This is true Christianity. This has been proclaimed by God's faithful people down through the years. It may not be popular. It may not be what you want to hear, but it's true. It's how it's worked. It's the path of following Jesus. Simply changing our expectations can often make such a difference As a young Christian, I was learning these things. I was meditating on them and beginning to see the the beauty and the the joy of what it would mean to embrace the life of following Jesus both in death and resurrection. 
It was someone I was listening to that made the connection that God uses our relationships to do that. One of the reasons Christian community is so important is precisely because it's hard. The real people around us that demand that we live differently and, and that we s struggle to count their interests more significant than ourselves, they are the things God uses to refine us, to shape us. They are often the downward part of the J on the J curve, just as God uses relationships to experience the power of the risen Lord. Now, one of the powerful places we can see this are in some of our most intimate relationships. I remember as a young Christian waxing eloquent, this is before I was married, uh, of, of new ways of thinking about marriage. I, I was sitting at a dinner table with some unsuspecting friends and I, I got to a bit of a rant and I said, don't you see it? Don't you see it? Marriage is the place God refines us. Marriage is the place where we learn to die to ourselves and we struggle and we're refined. When we get married, instead of giving rings, we should hand people a hammer and say, you're going to nail us to the cross. And all of my, I, remember, I remember the look on my friend's face across the dinner table, like, what is going on here? It's amazing that with that sort of romantic talk, I ever got anyone to marry me at all. Uh, but God is indeed, uh, indeed gracious, and uh, my wife is long-suffering. So, um, uh, yes, in fact, I have been the tool of her sanctification over the years in profound ways. But I tell you, you know, it really helped to come at marriage that way. When you do, you're surprised at how wonderful it is, what gifts God can give us in the midst of it. But if you start in that place saying, you know what? The basics of Christian life is death to self, life through Christ. The basics of Philippians 2, if you take that and apply that to marriage, to parenting, to work, to friendships, you're starting in the right place and your expectations are so much healthier. This is the place God will use to shape me and to help me. These are the people God will use to refine me. Your Christian community, your church, may be God's, one of God's primary tools of teaching you to die to yourself. You need Christian community not just because it's good and because it's rich and blessing and because people will help you. You need it because it's a place where you'll see how selfish you really are. Third and finally, it's not only our expectations that change, but in the midst of this, we see the power of the risen Lord. That's the backdrop of the whole passage, isn't it? The, the, the J of the J curve isn't just a going down into death. It's not just a stoic, oh, life is hard, accept it, and, and, and maybe you'll be surprised. But it's, it's a picture of conquering death in the power of the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, but verse 9, therefore God highly exalted him. Jesus was lifted up. He went down into death, but he came up into new life, and he came up higher than he was before. God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. If you are in Jesus, your experience of this J-curve, your experience of dying to self is all formed and shaped by being in Jesus. You see that? Have this mind among, among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. We're not doing it alone. 
and the, the format, the, the basis of the entire passage starts. It's as if Paul can't even get into the difficulties of the Christian life without first starting about all, all the blessings that come from being in Christ. That's how he starts, isn't it? If. The assumption is you, you do. Not always felt to the degree we want, not always realized, but if you are in Jesus by faith, you do have comfort from love, encouragement in Christ, participation in the, in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. You have comfort in his love. And I think the, the, the process can work two ways. Sometimes in God's grace, he shows us so richly and abundantly the blessings that are ours. And out of them, we then move to others. We love because he first loved us. But I think it's also true that these things are so intertwined that though the reality is there, the experience often doesn't show up till we step out in faith. Maybe it's true that in your life you don't really see a vivid experience of encouragement in Christ. Maybe the comfort from his love doesn't seem very close or the participation of the spirit doesn't seem very vivid. The testimony of God's people down through the ages is that when they cling to his promises and faith and they, they enter into the downward movements, the humility of the Christian life, the down of the J-curve, that it's there they see God so much more powerfully. I was uh, filling in for Solgi in his Sunday school class this morning and reading his notes yesterday in preparation was, was such an encouragement to me. But he wrote as he reflected on the story of Job, a righteous man who suffered deeply and immensely he said, often it is in our experience of suffering that God is giving us more deeply to himself. Friends, that's been the testimony of God's people down through the ages, that as we walk in the way of the cross, as we love others sacrificially, as we carry their burdens and count their interests more significant than ourselves, God shows up more vividly, more powerfully. We know him more closely as we walk with Jesus and are united to him by faith. And so let me just ask you quickly in closing, can you see ways this is true for you? Can you see ways in your life that God is working in your relationships and your Christian relationships? Do you have Christian relationships? It takes time and commitment. We're busy but it's important. Do you give and take in your Christian relationships? Do you seek to love others? And in humility, can you be open to receiving the care that they provide? This is God's intention for you. And whose interests do you consider beyond your own? Can you think now of concerns you're praying for in other people? Are there actual people in, in your life who have actual interests that you are concerned about? These are the practical outworkings of a, the life in Christ, our life lived in community. It's here in the midst of these things that God gives himself even more fully to us. Let's close in prayer.